You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 313 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. My guest in this episode is author Miguel Connor, the host of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, and we will be talking about Gnosticism. In the second century CE, some groups now collectively referred to as Gnostic Christians claimed to have access to secret knowledge about the nature of the universe, the nature of Christ and what his appearance on earth meant to believers. Gnosticism is the belief that human beings contain a piece of God within themselves and that all physical matter is subject to decay, rotting and death. That the bodies and the material world has been created by an inferior being and is therefore evil. That we're trapped in the material world but ignorant of its status. The pieces of God require knowledge Gnosis, to inform them of their true status. And this true status is that knowledge must come from outside the material world. And the agent who brings it is the savior or the redeemer. Naturally, the Gnostics were condemned as heretics by the church fathers because they promoted a higher god of pure essence and love as being the true god above the creator God. Or in other words, the God above God. So thanks for being on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and uh, what you do? I do many things, but I am known in my circles to be the host of AM Byte a popular podcast dealing with uh, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, and other ancient mysteries. And that has led to some books written and other content created. So when it comes to Gnosticism, there's often the topic of the archons that come up. And I've been curious because on your podcast you mentioned them quite a bit. And I'm curious to know if you, when you say the archons... Um, do you um, talk about a metaphor or, or an archetype, or do you actually think or believe that there is an an entity that is an archon? I would say all of the above. Uh, that I certainly contend, uh, really uh, buying into uh, Gnostic thought that we do live in some sort of simulation, a coded reality. I think that in our modern times, this is definitely backed by science, and some of the, the leading thinkers in the world would say so. The question is, who codes this reality? And the archons would really make sense, because in the Gnostic tradition, they are the ultimate coders, uh, manufacturers of this reality that sort of keeps us uh, asleep, forgetting in a state of thrall of their powers as they feed off to us. Now, I don't know exactly what they look like. I don't know. I don't know if they are the lizard people or Agent Smith from the Matrix. 
but I would say they are these uh, higher forms of consciousness that uh, keep reality in a state of status quo by while being a the stasis of the universe. So, uh, and of course, again, our minds cannot comprehend or we can only grasp what these higher realities might look like or act. So there you can definitely put on, put on the ideas of archetypes and images because our minds will always filter uh, these uh, extra mundane entities depending on our cultural background, uh, where we are in life, uh, and everything else. I think uh, the symbolism of Gnosticism is... Uh is very good because you can use it as an atheist uh, or you can use it as a spiritual or a believer or it works in both instances like as an archetype or as an actual entity uh, you can uh, in trying to understand uh, society and life you know uh, you can look at uh, big corporate leaders as working for the archons uh, as a way to explain it or you or you can uh, think of it more in the occult terms but how did how did you stumble on, on gnosticism uh, in the beginning oh i'm sure it's been i would say a lifelong journey i remember uh, being a little kid and uh, walking with my mom down the street and walking by the a, a bird that had recently died and asking my mom well, what happened i said well that's nature and me as a kid going, well, there's something wrong with this nature stuff. Uh, so this is it. Huh? This is a life of temporality, a life where we die, a life of suffering and disease where cute little birds die and so forth. And uh, throughout these lives, these uh, encounters of images, you might say, strengthen my Gnostic disposition. I've always been interested in uh different religions and different mythologies different stories uh my mom was we were raised roman catholic she was a devout catholic but she was a very open-minded ecumenic ecumenical catholic so uh, we were allowed to experience different things and later on in life i practiced i went on you know, went on a sort of you might call it spiritual hitchhiking where I tried different things, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism, fundamentalist Christianity, sort of uh, trying to see what was out there and what experiences I could have, uh, higher forms of consciousness and mystical experience. But it was sort of a slow burn into Gnosticism because it kept offering me a more realistic view of the idea of suffering, the nature of reality, the nature of evil, the nature of who we are as human beings and so forth. And uh, that's what I went with. And yeah, like you said, Gnosticism works as an aesthetic, as a philosophy, as a religion, uh, as a form of art, if you would. Uh, Carl Jung did call them history's first depth psychologists. And that's because they were, when you read their text, they are obsessed with how the structure of the mind is how the mind interacts with the universe and uh, what what is reality. Or as Philip K. Dick, uh, the great modern Gnostics, his, um, his two obsessions were what is reality and what it means to be a human. And that's what the Gnostics were also obsessed with 2,000 years ago. Isn't there like a major, maybe not a major, but isn't there a difference between the Gnosticism of the past and today? 
that I mean in the past maybe they didn't even call themselves Gnostics or there were different kinds of groups and uh, it's only now that we've grouped them together and called them something how do you what's your views on all that well I mean that's not that uncommon we have to remember that uh, yes, Gnosticism was a colonial scholarly term quoted in the 17th century by a scholar, Thomas More, I believe. But you also have to remember that terms like Buddhism and Hinduism were also Western colonia- colonialist uh, uh, inventions, if you would. And when you think about it, they said, well, Hinduism is this umbrella term for all these religions that exist in India. And Buddhism, yeah, it's based on the Buddha, but when you look at Buddhism, Buddhism is extremely uh, fluid and varied and very different. Uh, Even the terms Judaism, I mean, Judaism means those of Judea, but as scholars have learned, Judaism has always been a very fluid and a religion with a lot of multiplicity that spread across the Mediterranean with different views. So uh, you could say that uh, Christianity, the Christianity that we practice today, all the tens of thousands of denominations across the world, is completely different and alien to the Christianity 2,000 years ago. But it's still Christianity. All religions are, are living. All religions change and so forth. So I would say these terms are never going to be perfect but it's what we have and they're usable. There are no ideal boxes where you can put a definition in. There's always going to be exceptions or uh, extremes to anything. I think Gnosticism is a term that works. There were a few groups that called themselves Gnostics, uh, the set, some Sethians, according to Irenaeus. There was a uh, leader called Marcelina, who called herself a Gnostic. There were the Nassines, the serpent Gnostics, called themselves Gnostics. So there were some Gnostics who called themselves Gnostics. Obviously, there were some early Christians like Clement of Alexandria who called himself a Gnostic, but in more of the context is to know God directly, to have a direct experiential uh, contact with higher worlds. But I think the term Gnosticism, again, like Hinduism or Buddhism, is not perfect, but it uh, it works pretty well. So I have no problem using it. And there are certainly, uh, there's a lot more commonalities than they are exceptions. What attracted me to Gnosticism is one aspect, because I'm very interested in indigenous cultures and, and the umbrella term shamanism. And uh, one thing you notice in all these different cultures, it's not always like that, but it's very common, is that they often worship a goddess kind of uh, being. And uh, Gnosticism is one of one of the few in 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 uh, in the West that had like uh, Sophia, you know, compared to all the other religions that are very male dominated. Yeah, and you could say that's definitely a feature of uh, Gnosticism is that it is shamanistic. It is about, like the ancient shamans, about going into an altered state of consciousness. 
and taking a journey, a journey out into the spiritual world. Of course, again, you could say that the spiritual world is simply the inner world, but that plays right into the uh, ideas of Hermeticism, pagan Gnosticism, where the inner is just the outer, as above, so below. But uh, yeah, again, Gnosticism is about taking these astral flights beyond the body and to make... uh, a contact with uh, higher forms of consciousness or intelligence and thereby expanding an individual's uh, personal consciousness, if you would. So it certainly is very shamanistic. It definitely harkens back to, uh, it directly mainlines the ancient Egyptian mysteries and as well mainlines the, what have some call the first temple Jewish or Hebrew religion that was more uh, that was more holistic, more was more goddess worshiping. After all, Solomon was accused of having all these deities uh, drawn and images in the first temple. And if you read the stories of Solomon and David or before these these cats were going into some shamanistic journeys and uh, altered states of mind all the time. So that that would be what. Uh, yeah, that would definitely be Gnosticism and obviously in uh, Judaism as well as other religions. The goddess was slowly, you might say, written out of the script of the religion. So the Gnostics, instead of, um, as some have said, carried this tradition of Ashira and Ishtar, they simply repackaged her as Sophia or Barbalo or Pronikos or Akama, sort of all these names of the goddess figure. And she's very similar to the goddess figure of ancient Mesopotamia or Isis, this goddess that goes into the underworld for secrets or for redemption or for rescue, which is exactly what Sophia does in the Gnostic text. She falls out of the the spiritual realm and goes on this adventure to sort of uh, gather sparks of herself that she's lost, which is us, or somehow redeem the fallen universe, this coded reality. I find it interesting when you when you read the Bible, especially Genesis, that once you once you read it with the Gnostic eyes, it's it's very hard to for me to comprehend how so many millions of people can read the same chapters and not see those things. You know, like I remember I, I was when I discovered it, I read this passage to my wife, and she al- almost got goosebumps. It's the po- it's the moment when when the, the Lord says that he doesn't want Adam and Eve to become as one of us, meaning it's a plural form, uh, and uh, and things like that, you know. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of it is always going to be conditioning and programming that we all went through as children. But yeah, when you just read it straightforward, it's uh, you're like, well, either s- something is missing and these gods or god uh, ain't exactly what we've been taught they are i mean there are two for example two versions of the creation story in genesis in the first one you've got man and woman are created at the same time and are more or less equal and then in the other one you get the traditional one that we all know the garden of eden and eve gets put out of the rib and all that so uh the first one obviously could be more of a uh, closer to the idea of the primal man or the the hermaphrodite of Plato or the Purusha of the Hindus or the Garamond of the Persians. The Gnostics had it too with the Kabbalists, the Adam Kadman, where the 
one of the supreme forms of uh, being was this sort of uh, uh, transgender or hermaphrodite being, this whole being that God had to split up to be able to control. Uh, Jung loved this idea because it was a, it was basically the idea of the anima and the animus inside of us that must be reunited so that we can have wholeness inside of our psyche. But you've got that in the first one, and then you've got, uh, yeah, a whole bunch of other stories. I mean, the Gnostics were obsessed with the tale of Genesis, and they, it seems like they rewrote it, or they wrote exegesis on it, or some said they seem to even be, might have been closer to the truth, because in uh, the Sumerian myths, when Enki creates the first man and woman, the man is actually, you might say, subservient to the woman. She's the one of wisdom and the one that has to guide. And in the Gnostic text, Eve is basically an incarnation of Sophia, who's helping Adam reach the, the highest state he can reach, and, and basically incurs the wrath of the, the gods, the archons, who are ruling the Garden of Eden, which gets them cast in the flesh and ultimately kicked out into the world. And then there's an amnesia operation, so Adam and Eve and their descendants can't remember that they were once gods and then we have the whole saga of humanity across history what do you think about uh, this god uh, the demiurge uh, that creates this reality this simulation or this reality whatever you want to call it that we live in do you think that this god has forgotten he created it and actually believes his own illusion I think he should be fired if he's the CEO of this universe. I mean, somehow he made a universe where most sentient lives have to feed off of uh, other lives and, and suffering and all that. Uh, a universe that sometimes, somehow sometimes doesn't seem to ma make sense. I don't know if he has forgotten. Um, in The Demiurge obviously was uh, considered in classical times to be a benign and holy figure you first find him in plato's timaeus and he is the one that sort of shapes the universe left over or that's set apart from the the realm of ideas and he creates the universe and he's supposed to be good because according to plato the universe was a good place now there is a part that Many sometimes miss that he says that the Demiurge then left the younger gods to run things, and that's when things went wrong. But the Gnostics basically said if this Demiurge is in charge of the universe, then he's, he's, he's botched things up. He's done a terrible job. The simulation has too many glitches. Uh, the rules really suck. Uh, we feel more like prisoners than we do, uh, than it does a school of learning and something needs to be done. And they often associated this demiurge with the God of the Old Testament. Although there were sects who basically said that all managerial and creator gods and angels and daemons are all part of the demiurge. They said, you know, Cronus and Saturn are bad and Osiris is bad and Persephone's bad, Hecate's bad. So basically, any of the gods that sort of manage the universe are part, are demiurges and are negative ultimately. And it's us for us humans to sort of wake up, remember that we have this spark that got trapped in matter and we must remember this spark and find our way, our home beyond 
beyond the stars and a part of this rescue operation awakening would be facilitated by the goddess Sophia or some sort of Gnostic revealer like Jesus, Hermes Trismegisto, Simon Magus, Mary Magdalene, and some later Gnostics in early medieval times even included uh, Buddha and Zoroaster on this list. If we call the Demiurge or I like the Yalda Baus, sounds sounds very dark but you know in a sense this god is like false and creates this prison world uh he's he's mechanistic and childish almost like a a semi-sentient algorithm he knows only to copy Uh, the higher realm and to manage it and it needs a food source or an energy source like the matrix needs human electricity and that's what he does to us humans but uh, and often the demiurge and his archons can be very uh, uh, childish almost like again like a, a very immature algorithm who only understands basic punishment and basic feelings and Uh, knows how only knows how to torture and scare its slaves. So that's more or less what the demi, and that's how the God of the Old Testament often acts in that very petulant, childish, and angry way. And he seems he's just not very mature, and yeah, almost like a, a mechanistic, immoral. Yeah, and the the story they've been trying to preach about the, the fallen angel that becomes uh, the devil or Satan or Lucifer, whatever term you want to use, it kind of mirrors the story of how the demiurge came. I mean, he's also fallen and broke the rules. No, definitely different. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, he's not though. If the, if there's a fallen one, it would have to be Sophia because many of their myths do start with Sophia falling out of the heavenly kingdom, if you would. She rebels. And the Gnostics, again, weren't just making this up. You do find this motif or this trope of the rebellious goddess that goes into the underworld, like Cybele. Cybele originally rebelled against the natural, the heavenly order. And, uh, well, in, in the myth, she was a male and she castrates herself and becomes a female. But... You see that uh, with Inanna and other goddesses who decide to go to the underworld. Again, it's a motif that the Gnostics were falling for this great goddess and her journey down into the underworld or Hades, which uh, the Gnostics saw meant our world. We were in hell and we were in Hades. The Demiurge in many of their tales is simply uh, either the child of Sophia, somehow Sophia becomes insecure and angry and lost and her negative emotions uh, in some stories create the world or gives birth to the demiurge he's like an abortion or a bastard child of her and he because he's so powerful and he's not original he still remembers because of his mother has some sort of divine dna about the heavenly kingdom so he tries he grabs the chaos the matter or sophia's afterbirth and sort of shapes it into our universe and assumes that he is the supreme god and that's it there is that line in isaiah where god goes to say uh, i am a jealous god and there is no god but me and that's the demiurge because he's basically basically again a mechanistic foolish being who can't even 
see beyond himself. He's, uh, I guess in Jungian terms, he's the disconnected, warped ego that we all have when we're lost in our lives and all we can see is ourselves and our misery and our power and use our power to get out of situations. So that's the deputy. I don't know if you could say he's fallen because he's never really been part of the divine order, if you would. He's, again, sort of a misshapen, deformed being, again, very much like our egos are when they're under, when they're not running well. I always thought it was funny how Christians can be so satisfied with the, the fact that you can't covet your neighbor's wife, but God can be jealous if you covet another God, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, rules for thee, but not for me. That's that's a God to himself. Huh? Thou shall not kill, but he can kill millions of people with a thunderbolt. So why do you think uh, the God above God, or I mean, the real God, or whatever you want to call it, uh, allows all this to go down? Well, that's that's the million dollar question. I mean, uh, what exactly? The Gnostics certainly posited that there was a, you might say, a glitch somewhere high above, and that was Sophia's rebellion. However, if Sophia is the incarnation of wisdom, if she is God's wisdom, uh, then obviously wisdom has to know. And wisdom is going to, part of her knowing is to be able to embrace all these negative experiences and journeys and everything else. So it's almost inevitable that as soon as God's wisdom became conscious, as God is trying to understand himself, that this would happen. Uh, Others would say, yeah, there was a a mistake. What do you think? Uh, There's such a thing as perfection. We don't know what perfection is. This could be simply part of uh, God trying to experience uh, the totality of everything that needs to be experienced. Others might say, well, um, sometimes when you are becoming conscious, by default, as uh, you know, as the Gnostic texts say, they talk about all the great features of the mind of God, but everything casts a shadow. As soon as you start to uh, realize that you are benign and good, there's going to be a shadow aspect of yourself that's going to come out and that has to be dealt with. So there's a lot of explanations of how this mess happened. Um, but again, that's the idea. That's why I find the Gnostic text so fascinating because there's a multiplicity of meanings and solutions and questions, almost like a koan like uh, reasoning of how things could have gone wrong. There were some Gnostics, like the Manichaeans, they simply took a more uh, Zoroastrian stance. They simply said, no, and in the beginning there was light and darkness, and the darkness made a play for the light, and it stole some of the light, because that's what darkness does. It steals, it devours, and it took the light away, and it created this earth with us, with the Demiurge being in charge. So there's a lot of speculations for why this happened. Again, I don't I don't get too worried because my monkey brain can only handle so much. And I am confident that in the next incarnation, I'll have better downloads. Maybe it's like in that film V for Vendetta that humanity is like that girl who's locked in the cell and, and the god above god is the Vido, the guy in the mask, and he tortures her. But when she comes out of it, she's much stronger than she was before. 
Yeah, that is true. This could be some sort of uh, simulation where maybe we are the avatars of our true selves and we're learning a whole bunch of lessons, experiencing all that needs to be experienced so that we can understand our totality. So, yeah, that could be certainly one. Yeah, that's definitely one way of looking. And that's more of the the hermetic way of looking at it. Uh, the, the Christian Gnostics tended to be more dark they tended to see sophia's mistake and rebellion as a bad thing and this world as a bad place and they seem to be very pissed off pissed off about it but others like the hermeticists the valentinians and others were a little bit more like no this is not a prison this is just a very hard school unlike uh, other uh, movements uh it's much harder to find like a comprehensive text. So you, there's no like Quran or Bible, but what would you say would be the best ones to, to read for somebody who wants to get into it, not go too d- difficult in the beginning? Ooh, well, there really isn't. Um, I mean, the, you, you can get the Nag Hammadi library and all the copies have a commentary I personally always suggest to people to get, it's called the, the Secret Book of John, the Gnostic Gospel by Stephen Davis, S-T-E-V-A-N Davis, D-E-A-V-I-S. It's a small book. I think it's Skylight Publications. And he does a great job because the Secret Book of John, many considered is the the total Gnostic Gospel. It starts from in the beginning when consciousness became aware and how it expanded it's it's a very hindu but then it just flows right into sophia rebelling or falling from from the pleroma as the gnostics call the heavenly kingdom and then giving birth to yaldabaoth and then it goes into yaldabaoth's creation story and the garden of eden and it goes through the history of humanity with a very gnostic slant like the People in Sodom and Gomorrah are the good guys and Noah was a dick and everything. And it's narrated by Jesus. He's talking to the Apostle John and he's giving him this completely Gnostic. It's got the Nephilim. It's got everything. It's quite an epic drama. But uh, Stephen Davis gives a very good commentary on every passage and said, well, this reminds me of this. This is what's happening here because it can get pretty confusing because it's such a it's a really big text. And the Gnostics had this sort of uh, trippy, dreamlike way of describing things. They're like mixing Greek philosophy with Judas mysticism, with Egyptian symbolism and all that. So it can get kind of confusing. But with his commentary, you really get a good sense of what's going on. I would also probably tell people to get April DeConnick's The Gnostic New Age. It's really one of the best latest books, which explains Gnosticism and their text. And what's very cool about April is that she ties in every Gnostic text or sect to a modern movie. So you can kind of get what's going on. For example, one chapter, she'll tie this Gnostic set to the Matrix. The next one, she'll do it to Altered States. The next one, she'll do it to uh, The Man of Steel or the movie Pi, Aronofsky's Pi. So you get a good sort of context of uh, what the Gnostics were trying to do 2,000 years ago by using modern culture props. 
Yeah, the secret book of John was one of those books where I was amazed reading reading the original text without commentary. I, I thought it felt like it was written now. It's really old text, but it felt so modern. Maybe it was the translation, but I still, you know, I've read many old texts and they were like talking in a different kind of way. It's hard to explain what I mean, but th that's the feeling I got from it, that it felt modern somehow. Yeah, I think because the Gnostics were dealing with the ideas, they didn't exactly have the language, but they were really dealing with the idea of a simulation and the the coding by these uh, these beings that were higher up and this inner shamanistic experience. Uh, stuff that uh, really didn't exist. I mean, not in Western society, really didn't exist. The idea of a simulation and the world ruled by these uh, programmers, these uh, demonic programmers. But now in modern times, since the idea of the simulation and all that makes more sense, it's almost like we our reality is caught up to what the Gnostics were trying to say, which they couldn't say because they were hampered by the language and science of their times. That's why, again, Jung was really fascinated with the Gnostics. That's why Philip K. Dick was extremely influenced. He had Gnostic visions and revelations himself. But uh, he his, his science fiction, which has really influenced most of our modern culture, uh, was so impactful because it dealt with Gnostic themes and what they were doing. I think it was actually, now when you speak about it, I think it was me reading... Uh, Philip K. Dick's Valleys that sent me down the Gnostic rabbit hole. Uh, oh, same here. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an incredible read. Yeah, I like the concept of that the Roman Empire never ended. The Empire never ended, as Dick said. We're still in the Black Iron Prison. Yeah, time stood still in, what, 65 AD when the Romans destroyed the the second temple of Jerusalem, and they were able to tap into this power to freeze time and to create a reality that they wanted. So the Roman times, it's the same, this sort of uh, dark magic, uh, transhumanistic empire that simply changes things. So it may look like the Ottoman Turk Empire. It may look like the Byzantine Empire, the British Empire. And these days it looks like the American Empire, but it's the same oppressive system. And underneath there's these secret Christians called the Gnostics trying to fight the empire, which is now in, you know, in cahoots with the Archons and trying to break down the empire, the hologram, so, and get time moving, because when time moving, that's when we can really evolve spiritually and mentally instead of the, all this illusion around us. So if, uh, if people want to listen to your show or read your books, or what's the, the website and all that? I would go to thegodabovegod.com, as we were talking, or just type in Aeon Byte, A-E-O-N-B-Y-T-E, Gnostic Radio. Either one of those two will get you, I'm sure I'll appear at the top of the listings, but website is thegodabovegod.com, and you'll see information on my podcast, books, articles, videos, there's contact forms, there's stuff you can download for free, some not for free. And uh, yeah, that's where all the good stuff is if you want to uh, understand Gnosticism.
thank you a lot for taking the time to to be on the podcast my pleasure thanks for having me on if you like this podcast but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears perhaps you should head over to youtube and subscribe to my youtube channel simply search natural born alchemist channel on youtube and it shall appear or click the link in the program notes of this episode I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments, so with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. In the next episode, I'll be diving into the wonderful world of Satanism. Hopefully you'll subscribe to the podcast and stick around for that. As you notice, I don't have any ads. I want to stay liberated from the corporate demiurge, if that's possible. So please become a patron, support the show or subscribe to my YouTube channel. All the links in the program notes. I also do a bit of bartering. Here's an ad for another podcast you might want to check out. In turn, they do an ad for me on their show. Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, host of Black Hoodie Alchemy on the Fringe FM. You can catch me every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time, where we uh, talk about the dark side of metaphysics and we'll chill a little bit. Uh, And you can catch me the day after on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever else you stream your podcasts. If you've ever wondered what someone like Carl Jung might say about serial killers or perhaps cryptids, then this is the show for you. Skeptical, yet open-minded, empirical, but philosophical. We are going to talk about some really weird stuff, so I hope you join me on Black Hoodie Alchemy. Take it easy. I found a YouTube channel called Art of Spanda, and they had a Gnostic chant of the Qatars called Loboyer. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but Loboyer is my pronunciation. And we shall end this episode with this chant. This Gnostic chant from the Qatars who lived in the south of France during the Middle Ages is a This Gnostic chant from the Qatars who lived in the south of France during the Middle Ages is a very special hymn. Enjoy. Freedom is in the mind.
Slap out. 